Snuff Production. In 2018, Brooke Blurton was a contestant on The Bachelor, one of two dozen women competing to win the affections of former Aussie rugby star Nick Cummins. Blurton was a clear frontrunner, but she chose to leave the show on her own terms, just days before the final. I just want to go into that rose ceremony and just, like, refuse your rose. Like, this is... I've made this decision. Like, I just... I need to go home. Despite that experience, Blurton returned to the franchise for another go. As a Noongar Yamachi woman, she was the first Indigenous person and also the first bisexual bachelorette. People of all genders signed up to compete for her heart. It's the same Brooke, just new style, better taste in men and women. But there is a lot more to this impressive young person than reality TV fame. Blurton is a passionate advocate for mental health a proud champion of young queer people and young people of colour. In her new book, Big Love, Brooke reveals a far more complex character than we were permitted to see on our screens. And she speaks about a childhood that was truly harrowing at times, but nonetheless full of love. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is Brooke Blurton. Brooke Blurton, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to see you. Ah, thank you for having me. And we have just confirmed off mic that uh, while your home may be beautiful, it does not look like the hotel room that you are in today <laughs> when you are coming to chat to me. You, I know, are on the road to promote your brand new book, Big Love. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. I, um, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm always in transit, if I'm being honest. I live out of bloody hotel rooms all the time. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of used to the nomad life of being on the road, but this just feels a bit different because I feel like, you know, it's something that I've worked for over the last year. And it's like kind of now full circle moment that it's like, yeah, in its physical form and I'm able to share it with everyone. <laughs> Yeah, there's something special, I think, about holding that, like, hard copy book in your hands and knowing that all those hours you spent putting little words on a little screen are actually a final, finished, polished thing. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it just was, like, a thing that I was doing and in the background and that it didn't feel real. And so now, like, being able to talk about it, the process and the emotion and tears, blood, sweat, tears, everything that went into it is, it's amazing. And I feel very, you know, it's just also really nice to meet people in person. I think I've never done any type yeah. of like meet and greet before ever. And I think having access to people, especially during post-COVID, um, it's yeah. just so nice to connect on that level. So the book is called Big Love. Tell me about the reasoning behind the title. There's a few reasons behind the title. I always joke and always say that the word big is kind of ironic because I'm not very big and I'm quite small in stature, but I feel like, you know, my love and my energy is big on the inside and my intentions are always, you know, with big love. And so it kind of is fitting in that way. But at the same time, you know, I have been on love reality TV shows. So the love, the word love is very fitting as well. And then just the whole theme again with what I've been through in my life and one of the things that I never really went without, even though a lot of people would think and read the story and see 
why is that I have always been so motivated by love and love just from my family, but also from community and love for my culture, love for my identity. And so it just was very fitting in that space. But I think also like when I sign off to my friends, I always say like, you know, big love, love you. (laughs) That is a tremendous number of very good reasons for (laughs) your gorgeous title. It it does seem to contrast and also be quite fitting at the same time with some of the contents of the book. And I won't go into it too much, everybody, because you need to go and buy the book, which I will remind you about later. But you do speak about a childhood that wasn't easy at times. And I think the fact that you were able to stay so true to that really loving nature that you have and see the love that people had for you through that is really commendable. But can you share a little bit about the experiences in childhood for you that meant that you came to realise the importance of having loving family around? There's so many different views of who I am as a person. I think media and being so exposed to um, being on the franchise, The Bachelorette and The Bachelorette, people first knew me from those. And so that's how they only ever saw me on a national scale. And so for me, writing this story, as much as I identify with the person that people saw on the shows, it wasn't my full story. And so writing the book for me was about telling the truth telling of my story and it not being manipulated and twisted and constructed in a way that was very clickbait and very titled and um, taken out of context. And so, you know, in the book, I talk about how my childhood has shaped me to be who I am, but there hasn't always been a very glamorous part to it. And the franchise always definitely glamorizes that part, but that's not who I am completely. And so this was about reclamation. It was about taking all that back and explaining the truth of my story and saying to people all over the world who think that they know me that they really don't. My childhood wasn't always the most conventional. Um, I did grow up in poverty. I did come from poverty and that can be very messy, very ugly. And so I kind of wanted to show people that a part of my life has been trying to break that intergenerational trauma that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experience as a result of colonisation. And so I go into a lot of detail about how that affected me, my family, my culture and people still to this day and was really raw and real honest about it. Because a lot of people think and have an interpretation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as if colonisation didn't happen. Uh, It happened a long time ago, but it actually wasn't. And a lot of people are still trying to break this cycle and the effects of colonisation and my family was a part of that and still is to this day and so yeah I just kind of unpacked that into a more of an internal thought process and you know how I was able to make a life for myself and leading me up to be on the red carpet of The Bachelor so yeah a bit of an unusual uh, journey but also like you can, it makes a lot of sense to why one I, why they call the book Big Love and two, you know, why I was able to represent my my culture, First Nations culture, and also the LGBTQI community in the first ever season of The Bachelorette. Yeah, and look, I think your appearance on The Bachelorette meant a lot to a lot of people because it's a franchise that does have that 
glossy, beautiful, fairy tale, um, high fashion, glamour kind of feel to it, right? Yes. And it's incredibly um, idealised in the way it's presented. And yet I think for a lot of young people to then see a woman who was a First Nations woman and who was a queer woman represented as this incredible object of desire for many people but also at the same time pushing through those stereotypes of that show to be smart and interesting and fun and have incredible agency I think that was really special yeah did you have any sense of that coming off the show both times um I think I still wish they showed so much more of my personality and I guess so much more of my culture but unfortunately it was you know, during COVID time. So if I could really do it again, I would, but, and I would do it so much more differently in a way that I would probably bring it back home to Perth in WA. But, you know, it is filmed in Sydney and being off country, it's just so difficult to showcase that when you're not really familiar with the place and, you know, the mob there. But I think The Bachelorette is very glamorous and I think I was able to show a bit more of a real version of what it could be and potentially... But again, you know, people can say that the ratings weren't great, but it wasn't about ratings for me. It was about showcasing what is needed in mainstream television and representation really matters and it really matters to me and it really matters to my family and especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because we're not always showcased in the most positive light. And so for me, showing that was very extra version of it in a way but if you revert it back and kind of see the core value of why I did it, one was representation, but also two, to break down those glass ceilings and showcase genuine love between same-sex couples, First Nations culture in a way. And then also just like show a little taste of who Brooke Blurton is, but you know, you're not getting the full version of that. Big love is the full version of that. Um, because a lot of people wouldn't actually know, right, that I have survived quite a few things in my life, especially a lot of loss. You know, I was partly some neglect happened in my life, but I don't see that as a negative. I see that as unfortunately a cycle that would you know needed to be broken. Um, I had to grow up really quickly. And so, you know, and a lot of the experiences that I write about and talk about in the book are things that young people are still experiencing today and the conflict with their sexuality and the conflict with their identity and not knowing where they fit in this world, which is some feelings that I had growing up. So I just want to normalise some things and really bring it to the forefront more so. And I think I'm only one of very few First Nations authors in Australia. You know, I won't be just one of them. Like there's a lot of, you know, progress happening that there's going to be a lot more writers. And so I'm excited about that. (laughs) I I think that term intergenerational trauma, which you've used a couple of times now, is something that we often hear in more academic circles and uh, conversations when they're happening between First Nations people. But I suspect that it's not terminology that mainstream Australia is using or even really properly understands what that means. Can you talk us through how you understand intergenerational trauma? And I know it's always difficult to speak for others, but perhaps using your own story, if that's what makes you feel more comfortable. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I think the power of lived experience is really important. And I think I speak from my own lived experience and I can only ever do that. Um, 
you know, I do talk very proudly and very honestly about being Aboriginal in Australia, but at the same time, there is a history that we don't tell um, in Australia. And I think, you know, I have been a part of showcasing that on a, or not only on a national level, but on a, a global scale about First Nations culture. But this is only just like a drop in the ocean for me. I think intergenerational trauma, the actual word in itself is so complex people's experiences with that are so different. But my experience is that my mum and my grandmother were cycles of trauma that comes from colonisation. My grandmother was 27 years old when the referendum happened and that was the first year Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were recognised as people, which is only two generations from myself. I'm 27 now and my nan was 27 when that referendum happened. And so for me to think about my nan not having the freedom to go get to an education, wasn't allowed in bookstores or libraries or shops because she was Aboriginal, makes me feel very uncomfortable and makes me more angry at the fact that this was only two generations happened and people still don't understand that it wasn't that long ago. And so I really want to bring a lot of awareness to that and when we say generational, like that's just two generations. And when we say trauma, the trauma comes from the, the horrific history that Australia is based on, the massacres, the destroying of land, like all of that happened to make this country. It was off the back of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Thousands of people were killed. Like five generations up, my, my family would have been unfortunately killed in that process so that makes me feel like uncomfortable and it should make other people feel uncomfortable and I'm not afraid to make be truthful and make feel people feel uncomfortable about it because I live it that is my story and that is my truth unfortunately that is based off that experience but people don't understand that if they don't know the truth if that makes sense it's so complex in a way but the simple term that I put it is that I'm now 27. I get freedom to an education. I get freedom to walk into places wherever I go. Only two generations, my mother's mum, she was not allowed to do that. She was denied an education simply because of the colour of her skin. And that, for me, is so baffling. It's just absurd that that was only that time ago. Again, so much complexity to it, but the simple term is that it still exists to this day. People are still being taken. Children are still being taken. Systems were not built for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the only way that we can actually make this, make this recognised if we get people's voices, like myself, other people who are actually making it known for white Australians to realise that there needs to be a reconciliation, there needs to be something that happens where we can all acknowledge our First Nations culture. I think the point you make is a really important one, right? That legal change and cultural change and systemic change don't always happen at the same time. That uh, the 1967 referendum didn't bring with it actual equality, despite the fact that we no. made a very important change to the constitution. I'm saying we, neither of us were alive, but that we made a very important change to the constitution. That sort of stuff doesn't get fixed overnight. It doesn't get fixed in two generations. That's very much still there. And that's something that you live with. And I think that you um, express with an enormous amount of clarity in your book. I think you've been very generous in how you've done that. A lot of people have actually said that, especially 
people who understand. And I think, you know, it's usually people of colour or people who are from a minority group that actually realise that I have been quite generous with my words in in educating but also portraying like the realness of it and how much work there needs to be done. The only reason why I speak about it so generously in the book is because, one, I need people to pick it up. And unfortunately, that is a learning of basically over years of code switching. I've actually learned to do that. And that's why, you know, people will pick up the book and be like, oh, it's a beautiful, bubbly love cover. But when they actually read the context and what's inside of it, they'll realize that it's not all glamorous. And that's, you know, it's quite deceiving. But I think at the same time, it's smart because a lot of people will see me for all being a very glamorous, very put together, curated sort of person, but they don't actually know my truth telling the story. And then I hope that they reading parts of it will realize that, yeah, I was able to break that cycle, but not a lot of people are able to. What's next for you? The book obviously is going to take up a whole lot of time now when you go from that phase of being tucked away writing to being out and about talking and, as you mentioned before, getting to meet people and actually Mm. talk to them when uh, so much of you coming into the public eye has happened during a pandemic and a whole bunch of lockdowns. What's on the cards for you? What are you planning? I guess writing my memoir is kind of a closing of a chapter but also an opening of another one. I feel like having to talk about my childhood is probably one thing that I'd actually really love to stop having to explain you know I can kind of direct people into an experience of my book and then being like well I don't really have to keep living in the past anymore which is awesome it's also opened a chapter of writing for me I feel like I want to continue writing and so I've actually um Harper Collins had given me the opportunity to write a teenager's or tweens is what they call it, um, sequel about sexuality and identity coming from a First Nations perspective. Amazing. Yeah, so I'm on to that now. So that's another um, two years of, of writing for me. Luckily, we're kind of into a normal world now, so that's awesome because I feel like the pandemic is semi-over, hasn't give yet, but I had that freedom to actually, you know, write and that's my kind of new thing that I've found. And no more, obviously, like I'm, I'm on a new reality TV show called The Challenge, which is a bit more of a physical challenge show rather than a love show. Um, so I'm really happy for people to see me in a very competitive light because I obviously have been playing footy my whole life and so I haven't been able to show that. And so now giving that a go has been a good thing, but I think it will stop and end there. <laughs> so... No more reality. I think I'll be on panels and, and discussing important issues, but I think I'm easing back on any type of reality TV. Brooke, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you and get some of that big love energy. It's really exciting to hear what you're going to do next and I look forward to hearing more and reading more from you. Thank you and thank you for having me. That's it for my conversation with Brooke Blurton. A reminder that her book, Big Love, is available now at all the good bookstores and available online via Booktopia. Don't go away, though, because Bron is jumping into the studio for the weekend list. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and she is going to be helping me make some recommendations for your weekend. Bron, What have you thought of? What have you been doing? What have you discovered? 
I've discovered some new podcast recommendations. This first one is from the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show. She has an episode with Jan Fran called Jan Fran, I Just Thought This Is It. I really loved it. I'm sure many listeners will know who Jan Fran is. She's one of the amazing hosts of The Briefing. In this episode, you get to hear a different side of her, like how she grew up, how the Cronella riots had affected her and her family, how, you know, she would love to never talk about diversity again. Um, It's really fascinating about being a mother as well. Yeah, it's just an awesome episode. They get super deep and I'm just a massive Jan Fran fan, which is hard to say, but true nonetheless. (laughs) You know, there's all these things sort of telling you you don't. You don't, you don't, you're not from here. You should go back to where you came from. You came from somewhere else. You you know, you you flew here. We grew here. You're not from here or of here. You're sort of this foreign entity that's here at the behest of all of us gracious people who've let you in. That's sort of how you walk through the world. The riots were sort of the biggest confirmation of that. They were a very, very awful confirmation of your worst fears, actually, that you don't belong where it is that you're supposed to belong. As a fellow... Jan, Fran, fan. Again, very hard to say. Really had to think about that one. As a fellow fan, I cannot wait to listen to that one. Thank you so much for that recommendation, Bron. As always, folks, I'm going to bring the tone down, 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 but not too far down because while I am recommending reality television, it's very wholesome reality television. As you know, I am a massive baker. I don't like to cook. I like to bake and there is a distinction. And for many years I have been sad that only a couple of the seasons of the glorious Great British Bake Off are actually available on any streaming service in this country. Everyone, that has changed. The great day has come, that has changed. And Binge has dropped every single season of the Great British Bake Off. Get on it. Get to it. Get watching. I'm about three seasons through of the missing ones that I'd never seen. Never been happier. I've never baked more. It's the most wholesome show, that one. Oh my God, I love it. My next one, another podcast. This is brand new, Peking Duck podcast. Um, It's completely different to my last recommendation with Jess Rowe that is more highbrow. This one, Adam and Ruben from the band Peking Duck, It is so loosey-goosey. They're super fun. It's an interview podcast as well, but they, you know, what I would say is don't listen to it if you have kids in the car. It does get a bit X-rated, but it's so fun. The guys are just super light. They, like, have no restrictions. Yeah, it's just awesome. They've got awesome guests. My favourite episode at the moment is one that came out this week with Alex Dyson. It is just good. I was going to say good, wholesome fun. It's the opposite of good, wholesome fun. It is good, not wholesome fun. (laughs) People think I like rave more than I do. Like I yeah, rave hard when I do. rave, but I don't mind sitting down having a lemon ginger tea and watching Grand Designs either. I think yep. that's yeah, a yeah, bit less 100%. of the public persona. You go hard when <laughs> you. Da- I've seen you on many D floors. Yes, like really bring. Remember it. when we opened that bar in Melbourne? Yeah. Alex oh, yes. got the D floor going. Dude, you yeah. did. Talk what to me. Get on down. Jamiroquai. Yeah, oh, Jamiroquai, and you set off that You whole set room. the whole well, dance floor off. You put on the canned heat, and I brought the can opener, and we uh, opened it's it right up. up. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> things it up. got hectic down there. <laughs> uh, I feel like you sold that better than I sold the bake-off. Well done. <laughs> well done, Bron. My final recommendation is a shopping recommendation, everyone, which is not something that comes along very often. But the reason I want to share this is I believe that there is a war, particularly on women's bodies, that makes it impossible to find underwear that is comfortable and looks cool. You've always got to pick one or the other. You never get both. And I have found the solution. So there is a brand called 
Nala that I had not heard of before. Nala, like the Lion King, N-A-L-A. And they are awesome. They do really bright coloured, fun underwear, but comfort is clearly their first priority. I am not wearing anything else at the moment. On top of that, they are sustainable. They have taken all sorts of steps to make sure they're not killing the planet further while making us look cute in our underwear. And I appreciate that. They're also really inclusive in their advertising and in their sizing. So they show women of all skin types, all abilities, all different body shapes. And I am into that. And if you are someone like me, who is always sad that you do not have comfortable, pretty underwear, this is a great solution. That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you all for being with us today. We really appreciate your company. If you would like more of our company, then we should hang out. You should come over. The best way to do that is to head to our place, which is the listener app. And there you can follow the briefing. Or if you are listening to your podcasts in a different app, you can follow or subscribe to make sure we're dropping into your feed. While you're there, leave us a rating, leave us a review, make sure it's a nice one. And then Bron and I will go into the weekend smiling. We'll be back on Monday morning, bright and early, when Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.